Bowtech Archery prides themselves on offering a bow for everyone. Whether you have a short draw length, a long draw length, pull 70 pounds or 40 pounds, you're a bow hunter or a target archer, they offer a bow that can be customized to fit your body type. On top of that, their deadlock technology allows you to fine-tune your arrow flight. Visit BowTechArchery.com and check out the SR350 and the CP28. Bowtech Archery, refuse to follow. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the O2 Podcast. Today, you just have Andrew for a very brief introduction to our final part with Dr. Ashby. So this is going to be the back six factors of his 12-factor arrow um, discussion. And then we got special guest Mr. Troy Fowler there at the very end to talk about some of uh, what's coming up in the future of the Ashby Bowhunting Foundation. Um, Real quick, we don't have a ton of news. Paul is on his way out for a work event but reminder that we just uh, closed up the special lottery hunt so per the odnr website you've got uh, they'll, they'll have answers to you by august 8th and if you want any of those lottery hunts um, upcoming this weekend we've got the Jurassic classic down in cambridge so lots of outdoor activities down there prizes and education some music fun games all that kind of stuff um, outside of that, the state fair is still going on, so don't forget uh, you've got a few days down to get down there. Check that out. But we just want to say thanks to our partners over at Tethered. Um, your saddle, all your saddle needs there. Uh, we actually did a, a, a quick rundown with the guys' advances, and we'll get that out to you probably next week, uh, next week's episode to discuss the teach and train that they will be holding, in which you can get down on August 27th at their Hebron location. Uh, down here just outside of Columbus, and they're going to have all the hands-on stuff you need for saddle hunting, and you can try it all out and ask questions and, you know, do whatever you got to do to get comfortable with it. Um, awesome event. I honestly wish I had gone to something like that prior to uh, getting into the saddle, but uh, we figured it out anyway. So if you've got an open weekend there on August 27th, it's going to be inside, so rain or shine, it'll be good. Um, they got lots of stuff on hand and stock, and Really, Vance's has just about everything you could possibly need for hunting season anyways, even outside of saddle stuff. So, uh, But Tethered, uh, thank you to those guys. First Light, um, I love them. And they've come out with their waterfowl line now. Looking to drop a couple of things more, I think, um, heading into the end of the year. But start slow. Pick out a few things. Give them a try if you haven't already. I think you'll, you'll really enjoy the clothes. Super Light merino wool all that kind of stuff but keep you warm um, it's kind of like the next next level hunting stuff clothes <clears throat> and finally to our friends at go wild so that's your online social media platform for hunters and anglers where you are not going to get censored and you are encouraged to put your your shots of your animals and everything else that you're doing outside um, so all ages we got a nice little shop on there where you can pick up things like tethered saddles uh, as well. And, yeah, so thank you to those guys. And with that, we will, I told you it was going to be brief, um, get you over to Dr. Ashby's final part. It is a long episode, 
So I hope you enjoy it and get something out of it. And then next week we'll start back into some other guests. Take care, everybody. Should we go on to number seven? Okay. This is. Yep. Uh, I, I'm ready for this one because I'm sitting here with a fairly dull blade. Ah, yes. Edge finish. Okay. Almost got a pipe lit while we're sort of halfway break there. <laughs> we'll give you. We'll give you a second. Like that. Pipe That's okay. I'll, I'll, it'll set there. No problem. Uh, okay. Our edge finish. Now a smooth beard shaving sharp home stropped edge works the best. Its advantage is most pronounced in fibrous tissues. Now, we did a lot of testing on this, and what we did was take seven thicknesses of fresh buffalo hide, and we didn't clean the mud off of nothing, just buffalo hide hung together. And seven thickness of that in about a three-foot by three-foot square weighs enough you have to pull it up with a vehicle. To hang it up and we took a whole series of arrows uh all sorts of different broadheads two blades three blades four blades all sorts of things uh didn't do any mechanicals because mechanicals had performed poorly on the real animal testing there wasn't much point in even looking at it and we were just looking at edge finish in this test and we took each of the arrows and first we would sharpen it with a hill serration now, I don't know if younger hunters are going to know what the hill serration is, but basically you file sharpen as smooth as you can get it. Then you reverse the file and hold it at a 90-degree angle to the edge and drag it down and forward, and it creates serrations along the edge you can actually see. And then usually you make one swipe on each side and make the, the, pipe, the uh, serrations sort of stand up. And... Uh, it's, it's visual. You can look at it and see the serrations. So we would sharpen them that way and shoot them in and measure the penetration for each arrow. And then we would take those same arrows and file sharpen them as smooth as we could file sharpen them. Now, when you do that, you don't visually see any serration. But when we look under the microscope, you can see serrations along there. They're just very small micro serrations. And we would shoot them that way, measure their penetration. And then we took each and sharpened the edge to a honed and stropped polished edge where you've got a smooth. Actually, when you get them truly sharp, they start to feel duller when you feel of them because there's no roughness there at all. And we would shoot them that way and measure the penetration. And what we found, the, the serrations load up with, with fibers. And they will pretty soon get to the point that they you can actually drag them across your hand and they won't cut you at all. Uh, when we looked at each era compared back to itself, so we're not averaging the penetration of the whole group. We're averaging or, or measuring each era's penetration, sharpening each way against itself. And then we averaged all of those together. And what we found was that 
you had a 26% penetration gain with a honed and stropped edge over a smoothly file sharpened edge and a little over 60% advantage over the hill type serrations. Now, when we talked about the roughness and the serrations, there's other important things about an edge finish. And you really need to understand a thing called the clotting cascade. It's what causes coagulation of blood, causes a cut vessel to stop bleeding. And the this the lining of the vessel wall itself, of uh, the cells that are in there, when those are disrupted, it causes the release of a protein called prothrombin. Now, this prothrombin is going to react with the blood plasma to form an enzyme called thrombin. So you got prothrombin, thrombin. Now thrombin is going to catalyze the conversion of fibrinogen in the blood into fibrin. And the fibrin is going to attach to tissue tags, little bits of tissue that are hanging at the edge of the cut. And it's going to seal the vessel off and reduce or stop the hemorrhage. Now, we don't want it to do that. But what we find is that the smoothest, thinnest, sharpest edge you can get is going to give you the longest clotting time because it's going to go through there. And when it cuts the vessel, it's going to cause the least disruption of cells in the vessel wall, both because of sharpness and thinness. Now that's going to mean that there's going to be less prothrombin form. Less prothrombin means less thrombin. And less thrombin means that you're going to have less fibrinogen produced, less fibrin produced. But one more important factor, remember I said those fibrins attaches, <coughs> excuse me, attaches to the tissue tags at the edge of the cut, sealing the vessel off. Well, when you've got that smoothest, thinnest, sharpest edge, you're going to have fewer tags of tissue for the fibrinogen to attach to. So you're going to get quite a lengthened time of hemorrhage out of every vessel cut by a thin, smooth, extremely sharp edge. So you're going to have a lot faster blood flow. And this applies to every vessel all the way down to uh, capillary size where the diameter of it is only one blood cell. So uh, lengthening that time is going to make an animal bleed out significantly faster. And that's one reason with the, and you'll hear Troy talk about, you know, you don't have to trail the animals, they drop in sight. And, and that's literally true. That's the average outcome when you're shooting something like that because the bleeding is so free and so massive. And even at that little tiny capillary level, it continues to bleed rather than sealing off. And that's one reason that edge finish is very important. So you've got the fact that it, it loads up with tissues, making it difficult for the edge to cut and reducing your penetration. And you're starting to get, when you get the smooth, sharp, thin edge, you're starting to get uh, increased hemorrhaging 
and hemorrhaging that lasts longer. Hope that wasn't too confusing. Wait. So I don't need a two and a half inch expandable cutting edge no. is basically what you're saying. Well, if you look Just at most of really them, I have yet to see one that was truly sharp. And unless you want to sharpen and hone and strop every one of your blades on a mechanical, I've never seen one that was anywhere close to sharp. And that's one of the things we're measuring now in our study on all the shots that we weren't doing before is we're measuring, uh, we, we have a, a thing that measures sharpness and uh, uh, it was designed for us by Ron Schwartz, those KME sharpeners and built for us. And uh, we're measuring the sharpness of the broadhead before the shot and after the shot to see how well it retains the sharpness. And that's going to give some very interesting finding already has from uh, the Buffalo studies that Rob did last year. It's quite interesting information. So Dr. Ashby on the, um, kind of on the ethic or ethics side of things, does this impact the deers or I always just assume everything in deer, uh, apologize. Um, the animals trauma, does there, is there any oh, it does. change in that? Uh, with these, with these sharp, particularly when you're using the high mechanical advantage has because they're going to cut with less resistance. What scares the animal is the hard hit. And, and I found this, I did a lot of research for Barnes bullets uh, on, on rifle, uh, terminal forms of rifle bullets. And uh, I did a lot of the testing with a 22 Hornet. And most of the time, just like we do with these sharp, sharp arrows, when I was shooting, I was shooting quite large animals, kudu and zebra and things like that with his 22 Hornet with a with an 45 grain X bullet and uh, looking at the terminal performance of the bullet. Again, where I had to be able to catch it in tissue. Uh, but a lot of times the animals didn't know they were shot. Now they would hear the gun and they would jump and they would run 50, 60 yards. And a lot of times just stop and look around and stand there till they fell down. And this was the, the norm, the common outcome. Whereas if I shot them with, uh, say, my 757 rim, they would run until they died running and fall over. And the big difference is that hard blow. Now, I didn't shoot any buffalo with it, but uh, Gordon Cormack shot quite a few buffalo back when he was professionally calling me uh, on the Neonetsi Ranch with a 22 Hornet with a 45-grain solid, kind of solids, factory load. And uh, that was their common gun to use because it didn't destroy much meat and they were hunting for the meat market. And he said, and, and it was confirmed by the guy I hunted with named Bruce Cook that they would uh, shoot the buffalo and the normal response was run anywhere from 60 to 80 yards, look around, couldn't figure out what was wrong, stand there, start feeling bad, lay down, pretty soon they die. And I, I don't so know. So it know. is a big factor. There is less stress on the animal. I don't know if we talked about this last time, but um, I've I've witnessed this. Like I I saw this happen this year. Uh, to the point, I was concerned I didn't hit the the deer because she just like stood there. She hopped away fifteen yards and just stood there. No idea what she had. No idea what was going on. But now the only other thing I'll I'll say on this, uh, or that I I would just running through my mind. And Troy's idea of dead deer don't run and all that kind of stuff. One thing I noticed is a lot of times you don't get a heck of a blood trail. You know, if they don't 
go very far. You don't need one. But um, maybe it was just bad shot placement on my end uh, as far as that goes. But like I think you were saying, the bleeding's internal. And because the, mm-hmm. if it, it zips right through there, you don't get these massive gaping wounds. Um, I've had them where they, they bled out the mouth, so I could, I could find them a lot easier yeah. that way. But um, some of them, it's almost no blood. I've never had one that I could say was no blood. Now, it's real common for blood not to start for 30, 40 yards. Okay. And and then bleeding start. But, uh, you know, I, I tried looking a lot at uh, blood trails, uh, outcomes of blood trails. And the only determination I could make was that the only important factors were where did you hit the animal? What did you hit inside the animal? Did you have an exit wound? And where is that exit wound? If you have an entrance and exit wounds that are high, you're not going to have much blood trail of anything. If you get uh, a low entrance or exit, shooting uphill, downhill, that type of thing, and get a complete pass through, uh, you're going to have a lot more blood out of that because not as much filling up of the thorax has to occur before blood starts coming out. But when you shoot him high, high entrance, high exit, he's got to fill up with blood completely before blood starts coming out, unless he's spraying it out his mouth, which or nose, right. which can't happen under some shots. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So sharp. So it, it just doesn't seem to make a whole lot of difference in the in the testing that I did, whether I used a a two blade, three blade, or four blade. And like I said, I. Uh, Mechanicals, you don't get enough exits. If if you're shooting high out of a tree stand, uh, you wouldn't <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> you wouldn't have a, a lot of exit wounds. You know, they, they just don't get enough penetration most of the time. Right. I've seen that too. Okay. Shaft any more th- anything else thing about that? I'm good. Okay. Our next factor, we're all the way down to eight now. Hey, shaft profile, here we go. Now, when we did testing, we were using identical arrows except for the type of shaft. The same weight, same broadhead, shot the same distance. Testing was in groups, so the test shots are going to be on the same animal. So you've got a, a very good direct comparison. Shafts all have the same finish on them. Um, Taper shafts showed an 8% penetration advantage over a parallel shaft. Now, in both of these situations, we're talking about the shaft diameter just back of the ferrule was at least 5% smaller than the broadhead ferrule. So we've got all those factors in place. We're, we're trying to eliminate everything we can except the profile of the shaft. So we've got an 8% penetration gain over that parallel shaft. Now, over a barrel taper shaft, you got 15%. That's not applicable much anymore. Uh, there are You can still get a barrel taper shaft uh, in wood shafts for some of the traditional archers. I don't know why anybody would ever shoot one, but uh, they are still available. Uh, but for the compound shooter, basically, he's looking at a comparison of taper shafts to parallel shafts. And so he has a potential there of gaining 8% penetration. Now, this is probably 
the most often omitted factor because 8% difference, most people look at it and say, ah, you know, the taper shafts are more expensive and, uh, you know, 8% penetration. Okay, I got enough. You know, I'm already getting triple penetration. I put all the other factors in there. I don't need this extra 8%. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But when you get down to those people that need that extra 8%, that's those hunting the biggest animals. And those that are using low poundage or short draw, that 8% is important to them. And they really should be shooting a taper shaft because 8% is a big gain when you're dealing with, you know, minimal amounts of, of initial penetration. Any questions on those? No, I I don't think so. That one's pretty pretty self-explanatory. Okay. Yeah. Uh, factor nine is pretty straightforward, too, is broadhead or arrow silhouette. Any kind of irregular surface, lumps, bumps, where, where broadhead laminates have been uh, braised together or uh, uh, spot welded, anything that makes a rough surface uh, is going to increase air drag. Now, that's most pronounced when you're penetrating bone. And the bottom line is that the less bumpy your air and broadhead silhouette is, the more effortlessly it passes through the tissue. Now, additional slickness helps too. Uh, but the critical element is really to have as few ups and downs, lumps, bumps as you can. Uh, of course, that ex excludes that one step down your should have immediately rearward of the broadhead. Now, the additional slickness, we looked at, you know, some broadheads that had uh, Teflon coatings. <laughs> Excuse me again. My signs have drained something terrible. Oh, you're good. Uh, the, the Teflon coatings, particularly going through bone, if you get a sharp piece of bone, will sometimes gouge that off. Now, you're getting a lot of uh, newer coatings, like Cerakotes and things like that, that are much more resistant and, and provide slickness too, but uh, lubricants, you know, people, I've watched people for years uh, put Vaseline or chapstick on the, uh, particularly on the edge bevels to prevent rust. Well, that, that does create some slickness too, but they're overlooking the fact that both of those, Vaseline and chapstick, are a coagulant. They're making, they're making it harder to bleed. Uh, what do you think a boxer when he in between rounds he's got a cut and it comes over his corner? What do they put on it? Vaseline. They're not putting it on there. Well, it's one one good effect of it is the next time he gets hit there, it's going to decrease the friction between the glove and and uh, the skin, but it's also going to have an effect of being a coagulant to help it stop bleeding. Uh, I used to keep paper plates in my workshop, and I would uh, spray these or, or coat them with different lubricants. And every time I got a cut, which was pretty often, you know, when you're sharpening lots of broadheads and stuff, that happens. And I would run over and, and put drops of blood on these various paper plates, 
and then I measure the coagulation time. And there are some, some lubricants that are actually anticoagulants. But if you're going to, to coat your heads, spray your heads uh, to keep them from rusting and so forth, you might as well use a lubricant that is an anticoagulant. And so that's something that people don't think about, but can be done. But it does actually help even if you can increase the slickness of the shaft itself. That's going to reduce the drag friction on the shaft. And shaft drag is a major factor in penetration. So it does help do that. Uh, I remember years ago, a number of people uh, used to wax their shaft. Well, one thing you get with wax shaft is you don't get a lot of blood hanging to it. But it does make the shaft very slick and increase penetration. I hadn't seen anybody do that in years, but uh, there were a good number of people who were doing it with uh, all of the shafts back when I first started, be they wood, aluminums, or uh, fiberglass shafts. And uh, I've been guilty of it a few times myself. <laughs> but that's one thing that people could look at if they wanted to. It does offer you an advantage, a little increase in penetration, but it's not a huge gain. And didn't test it enough to come up with an actual percentage I can hang on. But uh, you can actually feel that difference. If you'll take uh, a really thick piece, like a piece of buffalo hide, and slide that arrow through there and feel the difference of drag with and without lubricant, uh, it, it's that noticeable. It does make a good difference. Any questions on any of those? So it says any rough or irregular surface increases the uh, arrow drag in all tissues. Does it have yes. any play in the arrow drag in the air as well? Absolutely. Gotcha. The arrow is always flying. All it changes is the medium. Right. So, it, it, yes, it would affect it in the air, just like it does in the tissue. It would just be a matter of degree. The only other thing that's coming to my mind right now is, and this is, sounds so stupid, is, is there ever too much penetration? And when I say that, like, you know, at the ones I've shot with good, you know, good shot placement and stuff. I mean, the thing's six, six, eight inches into the ground. I mean, it's hard. Yeah. It's hard to get the damn arrow out of the ground, let alone. It's like, well, maybe, it, maybe I could back off a little bit on the penetration. I don't know if I would pick up anything else along the way, but. Well, I'll use an example that uh, Rob Nielsen had from this last trip to Africa. You know, besides doing the buffalo testing and so forth, he did some shooting on uh, Plains game, and he had a bush buck. It was a bush buck. One of the small antelope. It may have been an impala, but it was that size animal. Uh, it was broadside when he shot at it. Of course, he's shooting a 80-something pound compound on that, I think. And uh, it, it, they, they're very quick animals. And it wheeled on him, and instead of hitting it broadside, he hit it right in the nose. And it went in and broke the jaw and came out, went in the shoulder, and came out the hip. Now, if he hit him broadside, he would have driven that thing way into the dirt. Right. He wouldn't need all that penetration. But because he was equipped to handle that penetration, in case it happened, he was able to get an animal that, with a lesser performing error, 
would run off with a broken jaw and probably starve to death. So that you know, there nobody ever lost an animal because the air penetrates too much. I can dig it out of the dirt. I've been known to have to chop them out of trees, but that's all right. 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 You know, I I didn't. I just don't want it to fail me by stopping a half inch short in an animal. That's a good point. Good point. Let's see here. Paul, if you're good, we'll go on to number 10. Yeah, keep going. All right. You're awful quiet back there. <laughs> I just went through a coughing fit, so I'm <laughs> trying right, to I recover. I have to say I'm fighting the same problem. <clears throat> My sinus is just driving me nuts. Yeah. Okay, we'll get, our 10th we'll factor it out. is the type of edge bevel. This is your question again. We're going to talk about that single bevel. When broadheads that are identical in absolutely every aspect except the edge belt are tested side by side on identical era setups on the same animal, the single bevel versions in all of the testing demonstrated a sizable penetration increase in 100% of the cases that involve bone impact. Now, in outcome-driven testing, it is so rare to ever, ever see anything that shows 100% frequency, particularly when you've got a large data set. That makes this stick out like a sore thumb as a very important design feature. But that's what we got was absolutely, if a bone is hit 100% of the time, you're going to have a sizable penetration increase. Now, the gain depends somewhat on the broadhead profile, but it ranges anywhere from 14% to 58%. Now, those aren't what you'd think they'd be at first looking at the 14% gain is on a really high mechanical advantage broadhead, something like a true three-to-one taper. The 58% was on a wider cut broadhead. Now, that doesn't mean that the wider cut broadhead, because of this higher percentage gain, had more penetration. It's the other way around the high mechanical advantage broadhead had very high penetration to start with. But even there, we could gain another 14% penetration just by going to a single bevel head. And, and when I'm talking about them being identical, the single bevels I was working with were a 25 degree bevel. The matching double bevel it was tested against had a 12 and a half degree bevel on both sides. So it had a 25-degree edge bevel, too. And, and you don't find that normally on broadheads. Uh, the broadhead that I used was, uh, uh, they were made by Ribtech. Uh, uh, Pro Big Game. And they didn't, they didn't make them for a long period of time. But I had those in uh, 190 grain weight that was an exact match for my single bevels. 
and I, exact same dimensions, same length, same width, everything about them the same, uh, even down to having the same edge bevel. And still, we got a 14% penetration gain when it was single bevel versus double bevel. Anytime bone was hit. Now, single bevels may show a, a penetration advantage in soft tissues too. The data was sort of suggestive of that, but there are other soft tissue impact advantages of a single bevel. Number one, they generally have that thinner edge. Now, most broadheads, double bevel broadheads, the most common sharpening angle is 25 degrees, but that's 25 degrees on each side. So the total edge bevel is 50 degrees. The single bevels that I was using are 25 degrees bevel on one side and zero on the other. So the total edge angle is 25 degrees. So they have a thinner edge. And just as we talked about in the hemorrhaging cascade, the clotting cascade, the uh, thinner the edge is, the better. And that there is a mechanical advantage to the bevel itself, not the overall broadhead, but when you look at just the bevel, it also has a mechanical advantage. Now that mechanical advantage, just like the overall broadhead, means the higher the mechanical advantage is, the more work it can do with whatever force is available. Now when you look at a single bevel, as opposed to a double bevel, the typical double bevel, you've got a, a mechanical advantage that's twice as high because your angle is only, your total angle is only half as much. So what that means is that with the same applied force between the tissue and the edge bevel, it's going to slice deep. Or if you wanted to look at it the other way around, with that same applied force between the tissue and the edge of the broadhead, it's going to slice with less force. So it's going to take less force away from, it's going to take less pressure between them to slice as deep. Now, there's also the rotation created by uh, the single bevel heads. Now, the, the rotation not only splits bones, uh, it has other effects too. Blood vessels going down to the capillary level through the tissues go in every which direction. It's like a bowl of spaghetti. And when you're rotating an arrow through there, you statistically cut more of those vessels on a bias, cut at an angle, than you would if it were going straight through them. And cut on a bias Think about a tube that's sliced off at an angle on the end as opposed to being sliced off square at the end. It creates a bigger opening so that the blood is coming out faster and freer. And another advantage to the rotation created is that when you get in mobile tissues, you get a thing called a starburst cut. And if you're shooting through intestines or lung tissues, or something that's highly mobile like that, the tissue actually gets wrapped around the head. And you will start to get cuts 
sometimes as much as four to five inches away from the path of the air's penetration, particularly in the intestines. And we looked at that, and I think we may have discussed that before by injecting dye into the intestines and to see where the cuts were. The, that's the only way you could really locate them. Uh, but the starburst cut does increase the tissue damage done by the broadhead in those soft mobile tissues. And it's a, a, a pretty significant factor, uh, particularly on an intestinal hit, uh, because it increases the amount of damage that's done. There are a lot of blood vessels in the intestine, and it increases the, the uh, damage done by a significant amount. So it is, uh, it is an important factor to look at in there. We do know that, you know, on shots that are impacting bone, unquestionably because they had that 100% frequency, the type of edge bevel is going to be important, and it's going to jump way up on the list of factors, and it's going to be immediately behind that mass weight above the heavy bone threshold. Now, throughout the whole study, we never saw a large bone split with any double bevel broadhead, two blade, three blade, or four blade. Now, we did see some bones shattered by those, but not split. Then the split bone is the typical outcome with the single bevel heads because of the rotation and the torquing created as it penetrates the bone. Now, most heads that you have are going to involve bone impact of one type or another. You know, be it a rib, be it spine, shoulder blade, whatever it's going to be. But it, it's pretty rare to hit an animal and uh, not hit any bone at all. Now, there's no downside to using a single bevel broadhead, regardless of the type of hit. But there are demonstrated upsides. When the bones hit, the advantages you get with the rotation, uh, the increased edge mechanical advantage, uh, the thinner edge, uh, starburst cuts. So I, there's not really any downside or any reason not to use a single bevel head. Questions on this one? Well, the thing I was thinking about is here I thought well, the whole way along the major benefit was I didn't have to worry about the blades opening up and stuff comparing it to a mechanical but obviously, there's a lot more than just that when it comes to oh yes, yeah, so. <laughs> a lot more than that. <laughs> so, one of the one of the shots that I've encountered as a bow hunter in Ohio with white-tailed deer, and I, I'm sure a ton of people have, is that hard quartering two shot where you know, what, what I mean. So, <clears throat> obviously, if you've got a hard quartering two shot and you rush that and you take it, you are going to hit all sorts of bone. That's right. Um, I, I heard Troy Fowler in, in, a, in a moment, someone asked him a question. He's like, aim for the heart and let it fly. And, and, and it sounds like, like with that splitting, I mean, you're, you're just going to go, I mean, you're going to get a ton of penetration with, yep. with that on, on a shot. If you've got a properly, you've done all the steps in a single bevel, like that sucker is just going to just plow right through there. Yeah. Just as soon as we, uh, we get through the 12 points. We're going to discuss a little bit about bone-breaking errors. Amazing. Because that's something that always seems to come up. Okay, ready for tip design number 11. Yes, sir. Okay, a tip design's greatest importance 
is on shots impacting bone because of the skip angle. You want the tip to be able to bite into the bone and not skid off the bone. So this is extremely important, even on lighter animals, deer sized animals and smaller, when you're shooting down out of a tree stand. Because if you think of how the bones are shaped, where you're shooting down at bones that not only curve in cross section, but are steeply curving going downward. And it's very, very easy to skid off that bone. And actually, I, I've seen cases where it hit on a downward shot and literally rode the rib around. It never went through the rib. But went in the animal, followed the curve of the rib, went out the bottom of the animal. And when you're looking at it, and it happens so fast, it looks like a pass-through shot. But it's not. It didn't get into the chest cavity. So skip angles are a really important thing. It's also important on quartering angle shots, even if you're shooting from the ground. So because you're going to be hitting those at a, at a much steeper angle. And there's more tendency for it to skid off. Now, when we were testing, we did all of our tip designs on the same broadhead, same arrow setup. So we had everything identical except the tip of the broadhead. And when we compared all of them, the Tanto tip showed by far the best performance. And like I said, that's tested side by side with identical setups. It also averaged the lowest damage rate of any tip design. Now it shows the best outcome penetration in bone. And that's because it bites into the bone rather than skids off. It averaged 110% better penetration than the worst tip profile tested, which was a concave tip design. And it showed 27.5% better outcome penetration than the second best tested, which was a round point, or rounded off on the end. Now, the Tanto tip demonstrates that lowest tendency to skid off the bone on angular impacts, data is suggesting that a true needle point might do as well or better at retarding bone skids were it not for their high damage rate. Because they get so thin on the tip, there's a great tendency for them to either bend or break. And that destroys their overall penetration. They didn't do nearly as well as the rounded tip did, just because of damage. Hey, we got any questions on tip designs? All right, so do you want to give the listeners a little bit of a, a feel for what the Tanto tip is? I think I'm, I'm looking at that on the computer here. Well, it's a name I came up with because when I was testing, I had to have something to call this style of tip. And when I looked at it, what it reminded me of where if you took two Tanto tip knives and put them back to back. And I think most people nowadays know what a, a Tanto knife looks like. Thanks to but Google, it has yes. That yes, angle off point. Now, during the testing, what you... head's in your hand? This one? Uh, That's on. an evolution. Yeah. Tough head. 
Okay, that's the Tonto chip. Yeah, that's what I thought so. <laughs> During your testing, Dr. Quick comment, sorry to cut in here. Oh, good. <laughs> on, this, on this test, if you go to the study, he shot, Ed, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you said you shot six shots of every tip style. Yeah. And seven, six or seven tip styles. So we're talking, he shot, like the con, like the Tonto tip was shot six times. This isn't one, two, three, four, six, call it good. It's a lot of effort. <laughs> and you see on YouTube people testing stuff, they shoot one time and they say, well, but not it. And that's the standard he set for us going forward, right? Troy, when you say that he shot him six times, is it sh- shot it six times without sharpening it, or was it sharpened each time? No, or- no, no, this is six sharpened arrows. Okay. Actually, it was a full set. There, there were six different arrows, all, all identical, all tuned, but there were six arrows of each. So, so I, I had six arrows. Six times seven, I had 42 arrows oh, 42. set up to do this test. Gotcha. So was that 42 different animals or were you using, it's just a kind of logistics I, question. It, but... it was, it was done on more than one animal. Okay. Yes. Now that's multiple animals. But when I did multiple animals, I would shoot all seven arrows on one animal, all seven points. The next animal, I would do all seven points to average out the variation you get in the size, age of the animal, bone thickness, those type of things. And you said that the concave was the, the one that was the worst? That was the worst. So that it, concave, it, it bends in. So from the tip, it kind of goes in. And then right, it, it curves, it dishes in at the tip. Okay. How? What was the difference like on that? Because was it a, a vast difference on the two tips, or was it just marginally different? Oh, no. Uh, that, uh, the, the concave was the worst. So I had 110% more penetration with the tanto tip than the concave. That's a little bit, yeah. It penetrated more than <laughs> twice as much on the average. That's a little bit. Just a little bit. <laughs> so, the, so like the, the, the trocar tip of those, some of these. We, we did testing with those two. Now, they weren't in this because this was all done with single bevel heads here. Because sense. most of the trocars are on heads that didn't perform real well to start with. Trocars and and rounded uh, bone breaker type tips are among the worst for skip angles. And we have no, another whole series of testing on skip angles where we literally would prop the animal up, the freshly killed animal, and we would take a protractor, lay it down, take a string and measure the angle we were shooting at, back up to our 20-yard test distance, and shoot all of our arrows from that position. And then we would move to a different animal by the end, <laughs> move to a greater uh, incident angle. So we would shoot it dead on, 90-degree angle. We would move to 15 degrees, move to 25 degrees, 35 degrees, 45 degrees. At 45 degrees, you're really pushing it for most any point. Uh, the tanto tips, even on a 45-degree angle, bite in and show no skip about half of the time. When they do skip, they tend to not skip nearly as bad. A lot of, even when you get to 30-degree angle, 
a lot of the trocar tips would slide completely off and just skid down the ribs. So were you testing like downward angles from, you know, simulating no, shooting out of the tree stand? Or you, so you're just talking about the quarter ground angle, okay. which gives you a much better uh, angle on the bone. Your angles are much worse when you're shooting down because particularly on rib hits because of the curve of the bones and think what a scapula looks like trying to shoot down at it. You know, if you're at close range, you're shooting at a very steep angle at darn near a vertical bone. So when we're looking at different arrow or um, the tip design, okay, so we're going to do single bevel, uh, but they're, they come in all different sizes, whether it's short, long, wide, uh, two blades, three blades. Does that all go into this tip design? Is that, was that part of the research? Uh, the, we, we did a number of different types of broadheads when we were looking at skip angle. So we would have had a variety in there from replaceable blade, three blades, four blades. Uh, there used to even be some two blade replaceable broadheads. I don't know if anybody's going to make one of those or not. I'm sure so. Uh, yeah, they probably do somewhere. So, and we had uh, short, wide two blades. We had uh, real wide cut ones, uh, convex ones, straight tapers. We have a huge variety of different ones in there. But the, ta the Tanto tip was the one that didn't it's matter. It's the one that, that does the best Okay. on skip angle. Now, like we talked about before, a needle tip might do just as well or better if you could get one that didn't that had structural integrity that didn't bend or break the trouble was so many of them broke or bent bent was more common than break and that's the worst thing yeah i'd rather have it break than bend that just changed the angle in the animal when it when it bends absolutely it redirects the force of the arrow Gotcha. But that's something, I mean, if the higher quality steel and stuff that you get with your broadhead will help with some of that, right? So that you're not getting... It, it will help with it. The higher quality steel you get uh, is going to help. Gotcha. And you'll notice that most, not all, most of the single bevels that are out now do have the tanto tip on them. There are some that don't. They have almost a square tip at the front. And that does, that does skip off the bones way worse uh, than the tanto chip does. I was going to ask I'm about sure that. Why anybody would put that on a, on a single bevel head? But some I'm glad do. you brought that up. I've seen that on a lot of the newer um, newer broadheads where they have that flat tip, and I've always yeah, absolutely wanted... the first thing I do is tanto that sucker, <laughs> <laughs> or not buy it. Right. <laughs> Fair enough. So Ed, is that it for for factor eleven? That's um... that's factor eleven. Okay. Now. Factor 12, what we got? All right, let's move on to factor 12. And this is one of my favorites because this is the mis most misquoted, most misunderstood of all of the factors out of the, out of the 12. I don't know how many times I have seen people state, well, the Ashby says you, you, you have to use 650 grains of error. Anything under 650 won't work. No. 
That's nowhere do I say that. The error mass above the heavy bone threshold has to do with the frequency of breaching bone. Now, regardless of the error setup or the broad hip tip design you use, there is a marked increase, an abrupt jump, an abrupt increase in the frequency or how often the heavy bone is penetrated when the total error mass is above this threshold amount. And the threshold is at or very near 650 grains of total error mass or weight. Now, it's going to vary a little bit by broadhead design, mechanical advantage, and so forth. But every error, even one that's a poor bone performer, is going to penetrate the bone sometimes. Anything works sometimes. And you take that poor performing bone broadhead and at a weight below 650 grains, it might break the bone 8% of the time. You go above 650 grains, that might jump to 12% of the time. It doesn't go through 100%. And a lot of people think, oh, 650 grains, doesn't matter what the broadhead you use, it's going to penetrate the bone. No, it's just going to have a higher frequency. Now, when you get into the really good bone-performing broadheads, and you're above that threshold 650 grains, we have 100% frequency. And when we got to single-blade heads that had a mechanical advantage of 2.6 or greater, they all, be they single-bevel or double-bevel, they all had a 100% reaching rate on the heavy bones of the buffalo rib. So we're looking at bones, you know, roughly three quarters, uh, seven eighths, to as much as an inch thick. Now, the, for any broadhead, it doesn't matter what it is, the heavy bone threshold is persistent. And it appears to be little affected by sizable increases in force. In other words, when I ran frequency tests of penetration with my longbows compared to a recurve, compared to a compound, the frequency of penetration did not change. Even though both the kinetic energy of the era and the momentum of the era was increasing, it did not increase the frequency of penetration. It appeared to be dependent solely upon the mass of the error. As long as we're in reasonable, and there is a wide range, as we'll see in a minute, of reasonable force. The heavy, to explain why this happens, hopefully, the heavier structurally intact projectile loses its momentum slower. This means it pushes longer. It results in a longer, what's known as a time of impulse. It pushes forward 
for a greater period of time. And that's why the heavy bone threshold is related to the error mass rather than the amount of kinetic energy or momentum. To, to breach the bone, bones have articulations. When you push on that bone, it's going to move. It is absorbing energy. It's that, that's done to protect the body. And once it reaches that, that point of where it can't move anymore, bones have some flexion. So it's now going to have to push long enough to overcome the flexion of the area. So it's a function of being able to push on the bone long enough that it overcomes the movement of the bone and the flexion of the bone before the error even starts to penetrate the bone. And that's why the time of impulse or how long it pushes is important. And that's why it's related to the weight. Now, a lighter error, if you're shooting off, I have to talk two different bows here. Because if you have the same bow shooting the a light error to heavy error, the heavy error will have both more kinetic energy and more momentum as, as up to as high as I tested, which was up to 1,600 grains or so. And, and I'm sure it goes beyond that. I know one acquaintance of mine that tested up to over 2,000, still going there. So as, as off a given bow, if you put the heavy error, you're going to have more kinetic energy and more, more momentum. But if you take two different bows, say a lighter error shooting off of a high-speed compound and a heavier error uh, shooting off of a longbow or a recurve, uh, that lighter error coming off could well have more kinetic energy and momentum at the time of impact. But it loses its forward impulse before the bone reaches its limit of mobility and flexion. Even though it it's harder. It doesn't push as long. The error cannot even begin to penetrate the bone until the bone's limit of movement and flex is reached. And that requires a long uh, time of impulse or a long push, time of push from the error. Now, the heavy bone threshold and why you'll never see anything about you've got to shoot 650 grains is because it has no significance whatsoever on shots impacting soft tissue. It's only when heavy bone, even ribs are, are on most animals, so you get up to the really heavy animals, uh, even ribs are not that big a factor. Uh, for errors that are below the 650 grain threshold. But even on a deer, if you take a deer size animal and you have a uh, shot that impacts, say, the, the head of the humerus, you know, that can, on a big whitetail, can be well over two inches thick. And there, having that error mass capable of breaching that heavy bone becomes important. It can also become important if you have an animal wheel and heaven forbid you hit him in the in the hip or the pelvic girdle. Uh, and you can break both of those with, with not too much trouble at all if you have the right error set up to do it. But you're not going to do it with a 400 grain error. 
you're not going to do it with a 450 grain error probably. You know, it, once in a while it's going to occur. And people get out there, they find these instances, oh, I shot one in the hip. Well, with a 350 grain error, it broke the hip. It's going to happen sometime. Again, we get down to the frequency. We want a setup that will do it 100% of the time when things go wrong, when you need that plan B error, something that maximizes the penetration potential of the setup you're shooting. Now, when we get a heavy bone impact, having an arrow weight that's above the heavy bone threshold jumps all the way up to number three position in our 12 factors. But when we're impacting heavy bone, the top four penetration factors become structural integrity, perfect error flight. Those two never change. But number three, now, instead of being FOC, is going to be weight above the heavy bone threshold. And number four is going to be the type of edge bevel. And after that, FOC is going to come in, which is number five, because the higher the FOC of the error, the more post-bone breaching penetration you're going to have. Now, date, and we've done a reasonable amount of testing on this, extreme FOC, or ultra-extreme even, has demonstrated absolutely no effect on the heavy bone threshold. In other words, if you've got a 600-grade error that's 30% FOC, or actually I've tested above 30% FOC, uh, does not increase the frequency of breaching the heavy bone off of any of the bows tested. However, once that bone is breached, the amount of error FOC has a huge influence on the amount of post-breaching penetration you're going to achieve. Now, bone impacts are going to occur on most shots, one type or another bone hit. And bad hits can occur at any time. Now, just from my own personal standpoint, I will not hunt big game with an arrow weight below 650 grains. That's me. I'm not saying anybody else has to do it. If they're willing to risk hitting a heavy bone and relying on sometimes it's going to make it, sometimes it's not, well, that's, that's their choice. They can do that. And on most hits, they're going to be just fine. It's only the heavy bone hits that they're going to have to worry about. And if they don't ever hit a heavy bone, if they're that good a shot, well, great. But you know, the animal has a vote in where that arrow is going to hit. <laughs> so you don't get to always pick that point of impact. And that's why I plan for that plan B. I plan that if I hit that bone, that shot is still going to be lethal. Got any questions on the heavy bone threshold? I, I don't have. I do have some questions, but you, you, you made the. You said just a you know an eight word sentence, and I feel like it's all of the testing, all the factors. It all leads to that to that one sentence was the, you know, kinetic energy aside, the heavy arrow 
moves through the animal longer than these lighter. I mean, that's what all of this is about, essentially, right? That's the. I mean, that's the whole purpose of this. See, that's the whole purpose, and and I think we may have mentioned it earlier, but a lot of people will say, "Well, the lighter air is traveling faster. It doesn't have to push as long to penetrate the same distance." But they're overlooking the resistance factor. If you double the penetration, or excuse me, double the velocity of an arrow, the resistance of the tissue to penetration goes up by a factor of four. If you triple that, it would go up by a factor of nine times as much resistance. And, and that's what they overlook. If they were out here flying through the air or something, they might say, oh, yeah, in a given fraction of a second, the faster air is going to travel further. So it doesn't have to travel as long to get the same distance. But when you hit tissue, the resistance changes. And it goes up on this. Uh, that's not uh, logarithmic. uh, <laughs> uh it, it goes up on this exponential, I guess, uh, resistance factor. And, and that's a factor that people overlook. So anytime you measure in tissues, then you're going to see more penetration out of the heavier air. Now, people do a lot of testing. I see it on YouTube all the time now, getting real popular with Ballistic gel. Oh. We talked about this earlier. Ballistic gel does not duplicate tissue. Its purpose is originally with bullets to show cavitation. That's all. And anytime you're trying to relate that to tissue penetration, it doesn't work. The FBI has agreed to that at least three times in written statements that you cannot equate it to tissue penetration. Uh, it, it's a big mistake that I see people relying on now. And it's become so popular to go out and shoot ballistic gel. And I think uh, Troy and Daryl even experimented with that. Uh, don't kick me in the head anymore. And told okay. us like a, like a, a good father to us. He's father Ed to us, right? He said, okay, I'll get the AVF to buy you ballistic gel so you idiots can figure out that this stuff doesn't work. He didn't say idiots. He's much more calm than that. But basically, that was his message. And he was right. It was a disaster. I'll buy this for you. He patted us on the head. He said, good luck with that. I've already done it. <laughs> we said, okay. And we called him and said, you were right. And he goes, okay, good. Let's move on. That's you know? <laughs> right. My my yeah. favorite that I've seen uh, is the taped together cardboard boxes, the layers of of, of oh, broken yeah. down cardboard boxes. Cardboard, I tried everything I could think of for years. I tried different kinds of plywood, different number of plywood plies. I tried metal. I tried ceramics. I tried cardboard. I tried wood boards. You know, just about anything I could think of, and absolutely nothing that I've ever found correlates with what you measure in real tissues. There's just no medium out there because tissues 
real living tissues or pressing down tissues are such an amalgam of different materials, different resistance factors, different angles of impact. Uh, there's just a whole host of things that you cannot duplicate in a lab setting. And that's why, and I hear people say it all the time, one of my pet peeves, oh, this is not scientific. It's outcome-driven research is the only way you can do that. Well, if that's not scientific, why don't we test all of our medications that way? Before the FDA is going to approve a medication to go out of the market, it's going to be clinically trial tested out in the population with a huge number of variables to find out just what we're finding out, what can happen, uh, when is it likely to happen, how often does it happen, under what circumstances is it likely to happen. And then from that, you work backwards to see what caused these outcomes to occur. It is a scientific methodology, but it's not what everybody saw in high school in the laboratory. The scientific method they're teaching there is totally different from this. You know, outcome-driven research is why we put test pilots in planes. They've tested all this stuff in the lab with some of the best labs in the world but they can't cover every variable that occurs out there in nature. So they have to put, when they've done everything they can, they said, oh, this looks like everything's perfect. We got to put a test pilot in there and go fly it to find out what's wrong. And that's why we do outcome-driven research. It's the only way you can look at something that has this huge number of variables and come up with a valid set of findings. The difference that it has between laboratory clients is that they have something that is absolutely repeatable every time, where we take a huge sample and see what the average is to see those things I was talking about, what can happen and under what circumstances like to happen and how frequently it happens. These are the type of things you can only find out from a large sample. So that's the biggest difference between lab science and outcome-driven research. Well, I think, well, I think you, in, our, okay. in our world, I mean, that, that makes so much perfect sense to me because every day you go out to the tree stand or go out to the woods, it's something that's different, right? Whether it's humidity, air temperature, the rain, the wind direction, there's always something different. The arrow, you know, Absolutely. everything changes. So it's, it's trying to be as consistent and, and uh, you know, confident with your setup as possible, right? What, and you said too that and, and, and the animal has a vote in where the uh, the impact is. I mean that's just that's that's absolutely right. So yeah, absolutely. We got any more questions on that one? And I, I think want to make a comment on the on the surrogate target idea. Um, most of the surrogate targets are too consistent. That's the simple way Ed explained it in great detail. But when the, it's like the target's too consistent. So then it just becomes, and this is Barnett speaking, the rocket man. It's just a test of that. Whatever you're shooting, whatever the medium is, because it's so consistent, a piece of plywood, okay? It's just a plywood test. So if you were to state, hey, we're going to do a plywood test today and stop talking after you shot the plywood, the testing would be okay. But they, but people stretch it and say, well, it's bound to work. 
And then it goes to the, the tremendous variability in just the impact thorax. You don't know, animals got to vote. You may not be perfect, et cetera, et cetera. You have no idea what you're going to hit. So, I mean, I got lucky on the pig I shot this Saturday. I shot between the ribs both sides. Because I'm that good. I know how to aim right between the ribs because I have x <laughs> That doesn't happen very often. <laughs> well said, the, sir. Well said. I think the, the old the old saying, and people always butcher it, the proof is in the pudding. The, the, the saying is, is the proof is in eating the pudding. And, and the, cool. shooting shooting pigs and watching them run 10 feet or however, you know, deer, elk, doesn't matter. I mean, that's that's the – that plan B – that's that's the that's the proof when you're in the woods. Well, that's it the is. thing I want people to get used to. Um, I heard Jake talk about this when I first joined the foundation, and Rob and everybody. It sounds really arrogant, but when you hit them right with the right setup, they're not going anywhere. And a lot of people are used to a lot of chasing around. They're they're used to a you got to wait three hours or two hours or wait an hour minimum. Dude, when you start rocking them with these kind of setups, you just wait 10 minutes and go. They're da- they're done. And I, I used to say, yeah, whatever. No, it's true. The yeah, one that's I, why uh, everybody uh, is so fixated over a blood trail. Yeah, right. Just kill them. Yeah. Just kill them. You don't have to worry about the blood trail. And that's the most <laughs> humane. Yeah, exactly. And and that's the most humane aspect. I mean, if if you, if you have to give a, a, a mature white-tailed deer three hours to die. Are you are you really being? Is that a humane kill? I mean, but if I can see him, he's forty. I can put feet it there from... too. If you want to eat them, it's really not good for the meat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it really isn't. You want them down, and you want to get them as quick as you can, and get them out of the field. I mean, there's cold weather and stuff, but you don't want to rely on that. You know, the yeah. pig I shot with a Giannis went down on camera. I mean, that couldn't have been more. I shot completely through this pig. It ran thirty, maybe maybe twenty five yards, and the feet went up in the air. And I was patting myself on the head for being on camera and <laughs> rolling one, you know, because that's how you just roll on camera. It was crazy. So, Dr. Ashby, we've gone over the, the, the 12 factors. Um, yeah. Do you have anything else that you want to add about the years of research that you did to get to these 12 factors? Any, any well, other points? It, that... it took a long time, but uh, – and, and – you know, 5,000 or so test shots. <laughs> but, you know, to sort of wrap this thing up, there's a couple of couple of things I want to touch on to sort of wrap all this 12 factors together. And the first thing is that maximizing your error's performance, his terminal performance, reaps far richer rewards than just increasing the draw weight of your bow. So instead of worrying about how heavy a bow you're shooting, worrying about worry about how efficient your arrow is utilizing the force you have. Increasing the draw weight while ignoring the design features offers only a very modest gain in terminal performance, if any. Now, some of the things I, w- I did want to mention, too, about bone performance. I have heard and seen written on websites, chat sites so much that there's no such thing that as a bone-breaking error that's been taught for years. That's why they teach people to shoot back of the shoulder 
stay away from those shoulder bones. Arrows can't break bones and so forth. Well, in some of our later testing, the 2007-2008 testing, we had 169 consecutive shots breaching the heavy bone on buffalo. Now, all of these were penetration maximized, structurally secure, all were above the heavyweight threshold, and we used six different bows in that test. There was an 82-pound long bow, 70-pound long bow, a 64-pound, the first two were straight in long bows, a 64-pound uh, modern reflex, deflex, high-performance long bow, a 60-pound compound, a 54-pound straight-in long bow, and a 40-pound recurve bow. Now, 18% of those shots were taken with that 40-pound bow. And with all of these 169 shots, with these penetration-maximized, structurally secure arrows, we had it work 100% of the time on 169 consecutive shots. That is a bone-breaking error. Now, some interesting stuff that came out of the 40-pound bow test was we tested against an equal number of sets and shots of matching profile errors that were below threshold. Now, you got to remember that these errors are all penetration maximized, even the below threshold ones, except they don't have the weight above the heavy bone threshold. And we had 30 shots with each set of errors. Now, the below threshold bone breaching rate was 50%. Exactly, 50%. Now, these are high mechanical advantage. They're all single bevels. You've got all the factors in there. 12 of those below threshold errors were ultra EFOC errors. All of them were EFOC errors, at least, except what? for these 12 that were ultra EFOC. What's EFOC? That's the ultra. Oh, extreme. Well, okay. EFOC is extreme, okay. and then ultra Sorry. extreme okay. FOC. So you, the uh, EFOC would be above 19%, up to 30% and the ultra would be above 30%. Now, almost 12 below threshold ultra EFOC errors, six of them breached the rail, 50%. But these six shots averaged 11%, just for the six that breached the bone, averaged 11% more penetration than the above threshold, normal and high FOC errors from the 82-pound longbow using the same broadhead. The only difference was between being EFOC at some point, between somewhere between 19 and 26, and they varied all through there, and these that were ultra EFOC 
they were 31.6% FOC. But if the, even though they were below threshold to breach the bone, when they did breach the bone, they averaged more penetration than those above threshold arrows from the 82-pound longbow. So increasing the bow force a lot didn't help us. And this also points out how much importance uh, the amount of FOC you have is to your post-breaching penetration. And that's one of the factors I would like to end on for people to think about. Any questions? Fire away. Lance, what do you got? Uh, I need about two weeks to digest everything. So uh, we'll just get back to you on that uh, later. But no, I think it all makes sense. I For somebody who's just like your average hunter and stuff, and they've they've listened to you talk, give us the all the background, all the research and stuff, what is the next step? I mean, in, in your mind, is just start going online and ordering, you know, you know, trying to do your best to set up the arrows. I, I think I know the answer to this question, or at least how I would attack it, but... Um, getting your scale out and, and just start messing around with stuff or, and Troy field. No, what, 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 what I would recommend people do is you sit down and just list out those 12 factors and you look at the arrow setup you're using and you look at those factors and you look back at your arrow and you say, okay, if I change this, it's going to make my arrow setup better. You've improved. And if I add this, I've improved some more. Okay, let's start out. Let's uh, let's say you're going to change to a higher mechanical advantage and a single bevel broadhead. Just those two things. You have vastly improved your setup. Now, if you increase the FOC on top of that, you've improved it even more. No one's trying to tell you you've got to make one big jump, change everything you go, and build this full 12-factor era. Uh, one of the factors, uh, most people that get into it end up with an 11-factor error. The thing they don't have generally is a tapered shaft. So one of those people that are looking to get everything they can that worry about getting this tapered shaft in there. And tapered shaft has a number of advantages. But when you look at a tapered shaft compared to a parallel shaft, you get about an 8% penetration gain. Now, FOC increases, it goes up. The, the percentage gain you get from 19 to 20% is less than the percentage gain you get from 20 to 21. And 20 to 21 is going to be more than 19 to 20 was. And this percentage is on a greater amount of penetration each time you're going up. So if you went from that 19 up to a 20, well, you've now gained some penetration. But when you go up to 21, you're getting a greater percentage gain in penetration from 20%, which was already more penetration than you had at 19%. When you get up in the neighborhood of 26% FOC, the penetration you gain 
from FOC from say 26 to 27 is greater or at least as much as you would get between a parallel shaft and a tapered shaft. So if you have to go from a tapered shaft down to a parallel shaft to be able to go from 26 to 27%, you're at least at a break even point and probably have slightly more penetration than you would with a tapered shaft. But if you can get to that 27 with a tapered shaft, it's going to be add that 8% back in again. So the tapered shaft definitely has an advantage. But most people, if they can get up in the high amounts of FOC, they're doing as well as they would with a tapered shaft at a lower percentage FOC, still within the uh, EFOC range. So there are break-even points in there for stuff. Gotcha. Very good. I well, want to give you my real fast. Go for it. So Ed said something great. He said, if you're looking at what, if you lay your arrows on the table and you say, I've got this and it's properly spined. Okay, let's say you're shooting 60 pounds and 28 inches. You've got a 300 spot arrow set in front of this parallel shaft. And you say, I don't have all the money in the world. What would I do first? This is my list. Cut the fletchings off what you have and get perfect arrow flight. I would seriously look at the broad head. And I, that, if you're going to spend money, you would upgrade the front. Because there's not a deer on earth been killed by a bow falling out of a tree. Well, maybe one or your camouflage. Broadheads. <laughs> I would consider changing veins. That's why I shoot feathers most of the time. My feathers, I cut them AA flesh like Ed suggests. They're 1.5 inches long and they're about a half an inch tall. They weigh 1.5 grains per vein. Veins weigh eight to 12, you immediately gain forward to center and there's a lot of aerodynamic crap going on there that I'm not gonna get into. You would not shoot lighted knocks and you would take the weight off the tail. You would just shoot a straight knock and then I would work on the mass and inserts are relatively cheap, but that mass change goes, if you increase the mass, you gotta get the flight. And from the thousand emails I get a month, It'll start about now, and I'll be getting 1,000 to 1,500 emails a month until October. It's nobody says, nice pig you shot. Nobody. They're trying to make the arrows fly. If your arrow's flying sideways, you're screwed. <laughs> <laughs> it's very simple. Oh, absolutely. No, I think this is great, and uh, I really appreciate it, uh, covering the, the 12 factors and all, all this. So we'll go ahead and... Uh, called it a day on the, on this topic okay so we're gonna st stay tuned here in a second but um thank you very much on of that course. okay so i can edit from there but the um let's see want to talk about the future of the ashby foundation and maybe even talk about where it's at now and and what what you're what you guys are looking to do from from there um so Troy or Ed, I don't know who's, I don't know exactly like who's on your board and all that kind of stuff, but I'm sure that's got a, a structure to it and all that. I don't know who. Tip of the spear is Ed Ashby. Always, so. right? <laughs> well, not not really. Uh, 
Yeah, Rob, Rob Nielsen is the president, and he's a workaholic, and I love it. <laughs> so when did you start the ISU Foundation? When, when did we start it? Yes. Uh, 2017. What What was the motivating factor behind that? Well, I wanted to see the research continue on. There were a lot, you know, when I hurt my back and, and could no longer do any testing, it, you know, I had just come back from doing three months of testing. And uh, I, every time you do testing of any kind, you come back with more questions than you went up there with. I don't That's care. After all those years of doing it, it never failed that by the time I got through with a, a bunch of testing, I had all these new questions which I logged down. I, I mean, I kept stuff written down. Okay, this showed up, so we got to test this next time. And you just don't ever seem to get to the end of it. And there are a ton of new products out there that I did not get a chance to test. There have been uh, advances in bow technology, in aero technology, in uh, uh, inserts and outserts and half-certs and all the things that are available now uh, that we don't have adequate testing on. And so this needs to be carried on. And on top of that, there's a ton of crap stuff that needs to be tested so people know this stuff shouldn't even be on the market. You know, it's junk. You don't know that until you go test it. You can't prove it. You can look at it and say, yeah, this is probably going to fold up like a beer can. But you know, soft aluminum beer can and that. But you don't know that for certain till we take it out here in the real world and take it for a test flight. And once you do that and find out, okay, this is what's going to happen and this is how often it's going to happen and this is the circumstances it's going to happen under. <laughs> so then you can look at this thing and say, this is junk. Now, being totally independent, from the archery industry, we take no funding from them. We take no freebies, no nothing. We have no connection with the archery industry. We're free to say whatever we want to say. Now, our funding is all through donors, and it's donors that make it make us able to be able to do this because when we test broadheads, we go out and buy them. People don't give them to us to test. Like so many of the people on YouTube, oh, people will send them broadheads. Here, test my broadhead, test my broadhead. No, we don't do that. Well, we go out here and say, these broadheads need to be tested. And we buy this and this. These arrow shafts need to be tested. We buy this. You know, these inserts, outserts, whatever they are, uh, these all have to be tested. We buy every piece of equipment that is tested. We buy all the bows we use for testing. So we're very dependent upon donors and foundation to be able to keep the testing going. Now, when I did the testing, I kept that same standard, but I paid for all of it out of my own pocket. So I bought every piece of test equipment that was tested across 27 years, and it is bloody expensive. I, I spent more on that. I could have bought a pretty fancy house and property for what I spent on stuff just to tear it up, shooting it. Uh but that's what you have to do if you're going 
to be, if you're going to have validity, you've got to be independent of the industry. So when stuff works, you can say it works. And when it doesn't work, you can say it doesn't work. Now, I've got nothing against pushing good product. When I find something that's good, I try to push it. One of the things we want to do as we continue on, other than testing all this new stuff, is we, we want to provide data to manufacturers that are genuinely interested in making a better product. And a lot of high-quality products have come on the market. Companies have actually been formed. Well, it was like Toughhead, based strictly out of, they were reading the, the, what we were getting from the research and said, oh, this sounds pretty good. Let's try to design something along these lines. Yeah, and we'll go test it out ourselves and make sure that everything you're saying is right. And golly, it worked. Let's put it on the market. So there are several companies out there now that have sprung up because of the research. I'd like to see more. Yeah, I like to see competition out there because it makes everybody strive to continue making a better and better product. You know, if somebody's making a very similar product, well, if we make ours out of a little better quality steel, well, maybe it'll hold edge a little bit longer, hold the sharpness a little bit longer. And so that's part of what we're driving with the foundation. But we're moving beyond that into trying to educate bow hunters as best we can. Uh, we have partnered with Texas Parks and Wildlife. Uh, we provide uh, some training for the bow hunter instructors. Now, we don't do bow hunter education courses. That, that's not our thing. But we will provide information and training to the bow hunter instructors about terminal performance of arrows, the 12 factors, the plan B arrows. Uh, so if they have this information that they can pass on through their hunter education courses to, to their students. And uh, just recently, we became active with uh, another Texas Parks and Wildlife program is with the Texas Wildlife Association, and they do youth hunter program. Well, some of these are gun hunts. So a few are, are bow hunts now they're starting to do. And uh, we had uh, a youth hunter program uh, a couple of weekends ago. And uh, that was one of the things that, you know, we, we intend to continue participating in because it's very, very beneficial to, uh, we, we actually took these students and uh, set up, arrows for them. Uh, now, uh, the arrows and stuff that were uh, set up for them were donated, but not to the foundation. They were donated to the uh, Texas Wildlife Association. So we didn't have any connection with any donation of them, but we uh, robbed, actually built the arrows and tuned the bows for all of the kids that participated in this youth hunter program. So that's the type of thing. And we actually did this last one uh, here on my property. And uh, that was the uh, essence of what they're doing. While they're doing that hunt in the daytime, they attend their classes. At the end of it, they've completed their bow hunter education training and get their bow hunter education certificate also. So it's a, a project that works that way. Uh, and that's one of the things that we're trying to cultivate more of is to provide information for uh, government agencies 
people that are involved in both training uh, and education of of future bow hunters, the young bow hunters that are coming up. Uh, we've also participated with uh, some foreign governments in the same way. Uh, we're trying to work with uh, South Africa now, uh, FASA, Special Hunters Association of South Africa, uh, to try to see if we can get the pachyderms legalized for bow hunting in South Africa. Uh, now, when I did the original Atal study and stuff, even though I shot two rhinos in that study, with the equipment available and, and what we knew at the time, I did not recommend that pachyderms be placed on the list. It was possible to kill them, but it was very difficult, very risky with the equipment we had, both for the hunter and for the animals. Uh, but with the equipment we have now, and we've had enough people do it over the last 20 years, uh, you know, over 100 elephant taken in various parts of Africa, uh, and several hippo taken, uh, a giraffe, the, the pachyderms, the thick skin, heavy bone animals. And uh, it's, it's perfectly feasible, and it should actually be legalized. So we're trying to work with them to see if we can get that legalized, set up demonstration hunt, I uh, don't know if it's going to work out yet. Uh, you know, everything in, in Africa revolves around political boards. <laughs> and you have to work around that. But uh, we hope to set up a demonstration project and be, do just like we did with the tall study, prove that this can be done, can be done ethically with the equipment that's available today. And try to get that legalized. Uh, we provided a lot of information to the government in Russia back couple of years ago, and uh, they did get bow hunting finally legalized in Russia. Uh, we're working some with uh, Namibia, uh, trying to set some era standards uh, for the bigger game there uh, to expand their bow hunting opportunities. Uh, so we, we try to provide information wherever we can to assist bow hunters and bow hunting organizations and professional hunter organizations that are trying to improve bow hunting laws globally. So we reach out as much as we can. And that's basically the, the functions that we're trying to do with the association. So it's multifaceted, but the testing and so forth is a primary goal you know, to continue. I, I want to go back, have other people, uh, other eyes on it besides mine, redoing a lot of the stuff re-verifying it. Uh, we did some with the testing last year uh, on Cape Buffalo in Africa and shot with compounds and better air setups. And by golly, I felt real good that uh, the results came out the same as mine. So uh, the laws of physics did not change in the last 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> Troy, so I, I Go ahead, Andrew. Yeah, I said, Trey, when you do your stuff on YouTube, is that um, is that kind of part of the foundation's work, or is that just Troy throwing arrows around? Well, I was struggling. I shot a 150 inch deer about 20 years ago, and I don't care to shoot another deer. It just, I don't care to shoot another one. I don't know why. I've, I've helped a hundred people I know. I've got a gun with 38 names written on it on the stock. 
that was their first kill with pigs and deer and stuff. I like to go with people to shoot deer. I've definitely been in on them, but I never lost my love of shooting pigs. And then I was really struggling because we cheat and use feeders. That's what everybody says, feeder cheating. And I said, hmm, I'm struggling. I remember reading the study about five times in the, you know, 09, you know, find hard copies of it or whatever. And I said, I have nothing to lose doing this. I already suck and I can't, I'm having a hard time killing them. And so when I started daring to go over 550 grains and daring just try to hand sharpen, I started absolutely blowing stuff down. So then I said, okay, I have now, I'm a reasonable person. I have set up shots. I got a high frequency of animal contact, no laws, literally no laws. The state does not care what you do with them or how many you shoot. And it's 24 seven. And because of the feeders and because they're very, uh, they are, they get dominant on the feeders. They, 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 uh, are pretty regular. You can shoot a lot. So out of nowhere, I just started saying to hell with it. I'm going to try this. And I started absolutely whacking the damn things. And when it started working, I said, well, I got to show people this. So I started up the channel, um, I already called myself the ranch fairy at the ranch because I already run the ranch instead of calling myself the ranch manager. I do magical crap. So the family has, doesn't have bees and the scooter always works. So when I put it in Google, it came up clean and I, I, I bought it and started the channel. And then lo and behold, two and a half years after that, I get this email from this crazy guy named Ed Ashby that says, Hey, you need to call me. And I literally look at my phone and go, that can't be that guy. Right. I mean, I didn't know it. I didn't know where Ed was. Literally. I didn't know he lived in Texas. Nothing. So I called him. He goes, hey, Troy. Like, y'all have heard how he talks. He's just super easy to talk to. <laughs> like, best friends. And then I went out to the ranch and hung out with him. And we shot guns the first time we were together. So that was fun. And lied to each other a bunch and had a great time. And then, you know, the rest is history. And I just kept testing the testing I'm doing, I've, I've gotten more complex because of Ed's influence and also the Rocket Man. Um, but I'm actually in live hunting situations, continuously pushing the envelope, right? And um, it's been super fun. I mean, it's it's been fun. I was I wanted to touch on the research, and you just kind of talked a little bit there. But how, how has it evolved from? Ed, when you were kind of, you know, in Africa building, doing the foundation work to, to get the 12 factors to what the rocket man and, and the ranch ferry are, are doing now, how, how has the, the, the actual research and data collection itself evolved over the years? Well, it, uh, uh, of course we branched out, but with, with Daryl there, who is a fabulous resource. Uh, he's one of our advisors for the, for the foundation. Uh, because he's get, getting to look at some of the science behind why these outcomes that we're getting occur. So he's, he's really taking it to a different level of, because of his vast experience with uh, aerodynamics and terminal ballistics. Uh, working with the Department of Defense so long on projectiles to penetrate tanks and rail guns and all of this type of thing. He has a tremendous ballistics background. 
And so he's looking at a lot of the uh, mathematical science and uh, hard science behind why he's taking it backwards. I said, we'd find out, you know, what can happen and how often it happens, what circumstances, so forth. And he is taking it back to this. Now, why did it happen? Here's the explanation. So he's working that direction. Now, we're, we have expanded a lot the other direction, although so far we haven't come up with the vast uh, access that I was fortunate enough to have with test animals. Uh, we're working towards it, though, and Troy can elaborate on what's upcoming if he wants to, because uh, no. well, we'll, we'll see how that goes. But uh, when I was testing, on every shot taken, I collected 119, I think it was, data points off of every error at every shot. So that's how big the database was. We are now collecting over 250 data points off of each error, each shot. Some of that's because there are new products, new things that have to be tracked. Adds to that. Uh, and that's the biggest place where this has increased. Uh, so the amount of data per shot that we're collecting uh, increases. And we're trying to do more of the testing uh, with compounds. I did a lot of compounds, but the reason I didn't do more with compounds is that once I got up on the buffalo, which was my primary big animal to test on, uh, I was getting error setups that were so good that with a compound, I was sticking out the other side of the animal. Well, one thing we were trying to compare was penetration. Once you exit the animal, you can't compare penetration anymore. You have changed mediums. You can't say, oh, it stuck out the other side and went this far. You know, that you can't compare to one that stopped inside the animal because you have difference in resistance factors, right? We were talking about where when it's going through that animal, you've got a resistance that goes up related to the velocity of the air. And once you stick out into the air again, well, that's all changed. So you can't use that data for comparison purposes on a setup. So I had to drop back to, and that's why you see in the, in the testing that as the arrows got better and better, I went from, you know, 94 pound longbow when I initially started, 82s, 70s, 64, or 60, whatever they were, 62, I think it was, uh, 57s, all the way down to 40 pounds. To avoid that situation where an arrow sticks out the other side of the animal. And then a lot of people look at it and say, well, it's all with old bows and so forth. The physics of the error penetration doesn't change. That error has no idea what launched. So I can I can look at what happens downrange, and you can take a compound 
and have an impact velocity be the same as that 40 pound longbow. So these things are it to upgrade in people's minds. We're doing more and more testing uh, with the compounds, but it like some of this Buffalo testing we did, several of the errors were complete pass-throughs. All we can say on that is it gave a complete pass-through. It broke these bones. Uh, this is how it broke the bones. We can collect that kind of data. You can't really collect penetration data other than saying it was a pass-through. We had some that just barely broke the skin on the other side. Again, you can't use that for comparison. Yet we had some heavy, single bevel, 1,100 plus grain errors that got less than a foot of penetration. So now we have some, we can look at on this error. Why did it not pass through? What, what caused this here? So this is the type of question that comes up for the testing that will now have to be looked at. And a lot of that look at looked at will come both in the field testing like that and kicked over to Daryl and Troy to look at when we can lay our hands on some fresh bones. And that's in our plans too, to do a lot of fresh bone testing with our high-speed camera. Uh, we have bought a lot of new equipment that was not available. Well, a high-speed camera was available when I was testing, but the cheapest thing I could find was $40,000. And that just wasn't in my budget. Should have got two <laughs> of them. Yeah. So when you get the high-speed cameras, uh, you can start playing with them and, and having a lot of fun. And we, uh, a sharpness tester. We, uh, we, we now have a device for precisely measuring the relative sharpness of a broadhead before and after penetration. Yep. Now, it started with a one that's on the market, but uh, Ron Schwartz, KME, modified this for us to give precise, repeatable readings by developing a way to, regardless of the angle of attack of a broadhead, it will always approach the test medium that's used to measure the force at a right angle. So you're always using a uniform measurement, which the ones you just buy off the market to use with a broadhead, every broadhead is going to have a different angle of attack on that test medium. And if you try to do it by hand, nobody's hand is that perfect. But we have a way to keep it absolutely perfect and get it so that it is uniform and repeatable, like your lab science so that we can measure that sharpness before and after, which tells us a lot about the quality of the steel. Because broadhead sharpness, you don't see it mentioned in the 12 factors, because that should be an absolute given on every single area you shoot. should be as sharp and as smooth as you could possibly get it to give the least resistance, but it needs to maintain that sharpness. Now, when you measure a loss of sharpness, you do not know where in that animal that sharpness was lost. Yeah. Was it going through the mud on the outside of the animal, which pigs have a lot of and Cape buffalo do too? 
and most other animals at one time or another, if they're given a chance to wallow in the mud, particularly if they live in a hot climate, are in a bug-infested one. Uh, so all of these little factors and new things that we're adding in. Uh, and, and so it will just build. We will, we will find new things every time we test. And uh, Rob is going back to Africa this year in a couple of months now. Uh, he hopes to hunt a hippo with a bow. Now, that's a separate database of information we keep for hunted animals as opposed to test. But once the hippo is down, you got a lot of space to work. On the hippo. <laughs> yeah, you can. You can this is like your test area is the size of a Volkswagen door. Yeah, uh, you have got some room to, to to put some errors in there and do some testing. Uh, and so he's going to do testing on that, and then he's intending to all goes well do another uh, uh, Cape Buffalo and do some testing on that, uh, repeating some things that came up as questions on the testing last time, plus testing some new era setups uh, there. And then he hopes to shoot some planes games, smaller animals, and we will collect data off of those. Uh, and it will go on. And if we get into a situation where we can get significant call animals, like I had access to, and everybody can get the time to do it and stuff, that's a uh, that's a big factor is, is always timing. And uh, of course, after I retired, it didn't matter. Testing came first. I, whatever time it took uh, is what I did. And, uh, but if we can get that working, but again, it, you know, I wouldn't expect people to do what I did to buy all the equipment, pay all their expenses and everything. If we could get, uh, a mass call, say, of Asian buffalo down in Australia, uh, you know, that's uh, even at the best rate, a $1,000 round-trip ticket uh, to fly down there. So we would be hoping that we can come up with funding enough through the foundation to pay for these people to go make the trip down there, at least cover that much of it. If they can't feed themselves down there with that many buffalo, uh, you know, they deserve to starve. So we wouldn't have to cover meals and stuff like that. Man, they need peanut butter sandwiches on the way down there and back. I don't care. Now, I did stuff like that. They can too. <laughs> but and if I you get hard pressed for someone to go that. to Africa or Australia to shoot buffalo, just just give me a call. I'll uh, I'll try to clear my. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what's fun is Ed's got. We have what Ed, we have three five hundreds now. We have yours and then Rob's. Yes, three three five hundred Nitro Express doubles. Double double rifles, and I I want to go because I want to get used to the recoil of a 500 nitro. I want to go. Yeah, here I mean here we go. It's just it's just a boom. You know I don't want. You know, it, it, it's it's uh. There were times I did a lot of testing without <laughs> that kind of backup, but it's nice to have because stuff does happen. Uh, the fellow I Dave, the fellow I uh, did bu buffalo calling with, uh, down in Australia, uh, he's retired game ranger down there. Uh, uh, used to be the head ranger up at uh, Kakadu National Park for many, many years. Back when access was only by horseback. I mean, he he was back there. It's called thousands of buffalo back when they were trying to eliminate the Asian buffalo as an invasive species. Uh, but I would go up and do the work with him. And uh, uh, he had a call so close 
that uh, a buffalo took his shirt pocket off with his horn tail. So having a big rifle is a good thing. The other thing that is very useful for is when we're doing culling, you have this tight window of 30 minutes test time before physiologic changes start occurring, particularly with the uh, blood, which helps lubricate an error during penetration. So we try to confine all test shots to within 30 minutes of putting the animal down as fast as we can get to him and get him rolled up and do the test shots. So everything has to be ready to go. Everybody has to know their job. Uh, how many, and those how many, how many are, shots are can you good. get? We have to put them down with a shot remote from where we want to test. And those big rifles with the right bullet set them uh, are very, very effective uh, for neck shots, head shots, uh, for absolute instant kills uh, on animals the size of, uh, of a buffalo. And uh, that's one reason for having the big rifles. Uh, we also have a, you know, access to a couple of 375s, which uh, uh, probably would be more useful at longer ranges uh, because your big doubles are, are open-sided guns, which is what you want should things go the wrong way and, and somebody have to stop a buffalo. Uh, so it's a smart thing to have when you're doing the testing. And I was going to ask you how many how many shots after you shoot an animal in thirty minutes can you get off with it with your bow and arrow? Well, I I had all of my test sequence organized, and I took tubes, and I would put it in there and label what it was, and then a big number on it, one, two, three, four, five, and each test set, depending on what I was doing, would have. X number of arrows in there. Uh, it might have 12 arrows. It might have six arrows. And so I knew which ones I was going to do first. And what you do is do as many as you can, limited by the size of the shooting area you've got to work with or the type of shots you're trying to take and the time factor of the 30 minutes. So you can't go in and say, oh, I'm going to shoot six arrows or 12 arrows because one thing or another might vary that. But it all has to be carefully planned ahead of time. Arrows built up, tuned. It is a massive amount of pre-testing work to get the setups ready to do the testing in the time frame that's required. I get that. Yep, that makes sense. Um, so on uh, t in today's world, when you started this, this research 30 years ago or whatever, there and about, you know, we didn't have the internet. Uh, we didn't have much of anything. Nowadays, Troy can go out with his phone and record things live, and it goes to the world, uh, to their phones. So when it comes to the distribution of all this information, you talked about working with the, the bow hunting groups down there in Texas and stuff. What's the plan for, for more distribution to the public moving forward? Is there any... Um, is it more YouTube, social media, that kind of stuff? Or is it like on the kind of grassroots side of things at these state it, level? It, it's all of it. Uh, we, we try to make uh, the information available on social media as much as we can. Uh, we do have a YouTube channel, which we haven't done much with yet. We have put some stuff on there, but uh, haven't done a lot with it yet. But once we get into the bone testing that I hope uh, – 
Daryl and probably Rob will get involved in it too, and Troy. Uh, we will hopefully do little short high-speed videos. Uh, this is the era setup that we're using. This is the boat is shooting it. Velocity, all those kind of information. And here are the shots. Boom, boom, boom. We'll have little three or four minute video clips testing just like one broadhead or one error setup. And then we'll do another one for a different one. But we have to, right now, it's, uh, we're having difficulty coming up with access to enough fresh bones because the economy, thanks to unnamed persons, uh, is bad enough that uh, those things are bringing a lot of money in the, in the supermarket. Uh, people are down to boiling bones and making soup out of them. And, uh, you know, wholesale, they're going for 7 or $8 a pound for bones. Uh, so the butchers aren't uh, too free with giving them away anymore. And, of course, there's always the dog meal market and things like that that they sell bones to. And as the price of bones goes up, yeah, the demand also goes up. But the price of those dog or your dog food goes up because the price of them for the bones goes up. So, you know, it's a vicious circle. And right now, with the economy like it is, we're having great difficulty. We're used to, I could go down and, and if I need some fresh bones, go to the butcher. And he, oh, yeah, I'll save you some. What do you want? How many do you want? No problem. And, and get, uh, get fresh bones. But you can't do that now. Uh, hopefully that situation will improve. That's one of the advantages if we get into a cull situation. Uh, we can also harvest those, those bones like uh, tumorous, femurs, scapulas. If we're doing all thorax cavity shots on a, on a buffalo, then we're going to have an intact scapula. We can save that. And we can have these bones to do the bone broadhead testing that we're, we're trying to do against those. But it looks like right now our best source of bones is all going to salvage them ourselves. Uh, for foreseeable future till the economy changes, bones are going to be in short supply. So that's little, little things we have to deal with with trying to do the testing. Uh, you were asking about getting the stuff out, but, you know, like the stuff we're doing with Texas Parks and Wildlife, uh, with the Youth Hunter Program. We're, we're trying to do as many different things as we can to reach as many people as we can by any method that we can. And we make all that information freely available. They do not pay a penny for any of it. Ed or Troy, whoever wants to answer this question, feel free. Um, what, why is so much criticism about the Ashby Foundation? Ed, you as an individual, as a researcher, and, and the heavy arrow setup. Why, why is it so easy for modern social media, you know, modern archers, to just hate the work that you guys have done and just and just try to discredit? I mean, people spend an enormous amount of energy. To discredit this research and in this idea why, why so much criticism i'm gonna i'm gonna step on that up front all right you step on it yeah. <laughs> ed doesn't deserve this because when i first met ed this needs to be said i'm gonna start saying it on every podcast and add it to my videos i hit ed in the head and said 
do you think because of velocity from the modern compound, there is a lower heavy bone threshold? And his answer was three words. We don't know. And Ed sets Ed that when you have somebody who's humble enough, who shot two rhinos with a longbow and all the stuff he's done to not say, well, of course not. Okay. Haven't you read the study stupid? That's what most people would do, but that that's a great leadership point. And, and thank you for doing that. You know, and then setting us up like that. We're not out to prove anything. We're out to find out something. I wrote down three things he said in this case. So he was just talking, whatever factor he was talking about in that case, let's say it was the tip talk X happened. The, 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 the very needle tip was suggestive, but not uniform in its results in the testing. And then we have a lot more questions. That's a very different mindset than saying, I have a stick in my hand and I'm going to prove to you that it will kill a white-tailed deer, which Ed already said. We know when you hit them right, most things work. He didn't say that, but he did. So I think it's the disconnect. First of all, animal, uh, humans are herd animals. And if you try to stand outside the herd, people immediately shoot at you. You just get ready for that. You get on YouTube. You guys got a podcast. I'm sure you all get smoked for whatever. That stupid call, you talk to some guy with a duck call, he's an idiot. He doesn't even know how to blow for mallards. I guarantee you get that. If I had a, if I painted doorknobs, I would get criticized by some paint guy. I guarantee you. It's that <laughs> stupid, okay? So there's that. And then I don't, I honestly, the, now my perspective has shifted over the last three years when I test. And Ed said this earlier. Every time you test, you get another page of questions. And then what happens when you do that, and Ed, I think this is where your answer says, we don't know on the 650 grand going fast. Your brain changes. The way you think about things completely shifts to, I wonder what's going to happen. And I'm okay with the results from, I got my stick, if some bitch is going to work, I, I've killed 100 deer, and I'm going to prove it. That's a different mindset to prove what you have in your hands as opposed to say, huh, I wonder what's going to happen today to us. Because me and the Barnett have already had three or four situations. I've called that about a couple of them where we said, holy crap, we were completely wrong about X shooting the arrow gun, which is really cool to do. A couple of the gel tests, we blow, tried to blow stuff up, you know, break things that didn't break. We've tried to catch some crazy arrow flight things that we thought our understanding and even Barnett's, you know, background, X should have happened and Y, and it did not. And high-speed cameras will make you a liar like nothing you've ever played with. They are amazing. So I think that's the disconnect. I'm, the main disconnect, I don't take it personally. I used to kind of get pissed about it every once in a while, but I don't take it personally as much because I don't, people's mindset isn't, I wonder what's going to happen to me today when I play with these toys. They're trying to prove that their toys work. So I think that's why Ed's research gets so much heat because it's really hard to deny 30 years of stuff. 
It's really hard. You will never hear Ed say, you people are idiots. I killed two rhinos. He'll never say that. He said it today in a sentence. He said, yeah, you know, I shot a couple of rhinos and then just kept talking about whatever you're talking about. But he's not doing that to prove that he shot two rhinos. And Ed, thank you for that. So it's, it's the grandstand mentality that I'm going to prove that my stuff works as opposed to, like I said, my brain has shifted a lot to, hmm, let's go around with this stuff and see what happens. It's super fun. So it's fine. You know what? The research is there, and I, I bust people in the head with this when I get stupid comments. I say, start a channel and disprove it. We will gladly accept the research if you can – if something's different. You know what Ed would say? Huh, never thought of that. I guarantee you we wouldn't burn it. We wouldn't burn their book at the stake. We wouldn't. It's not I think it comes. I think it comes with just – I'm a lot like that. I've got a, a curious nature yeah, me too. to me. And, you know, I'll, I'll be out hunting and I'll see a hill and I'm like, man, nothing's going on. I wonder what's on top of that hill. I wonder what's on the other side of that hill. And I'll walk up to the other side of that hill just to find out what the, what the answer is, you know. And, and I, I think so many people, they just they, they close their mind to anything new. And you've said it a hundred times on your channel, fear of change, FOC, fear yeah, of change. Right. And, and I think I think that's what a lot of it is. And I just I, I, I see some of it. I'm like, I don't understand. Just just have an open mind, just look at it, be receptive. There's a ton of data, uh, you know, to, to, to go behind it. And I think it's interesting. Someone said to me years ago, we can collect all the data in the world. It's what we do, the decisions that we make with that data that's important. And I, I think that, you know, you guys are, are, are definitely on, on, on the right step. So what's kind of the next steps that you guys have going on? Any, anything really exciting, any cool research, any, any things that, you know, Troy or Ed that you said, well, maybe we were wrong or, oh, man, we didn't realize that that was that we were right, but we were really right. We haven't we haven't gotten into on on meat testing where we can duplicate or repeat what Ed's done with compound yet. So that's one of the big things we want to start doing. The bone thing's a problem for a year. We've been trying to dig them up and start with something simple. The challenge is you need 100 of them. Can't shoot a bone twice. This is one of the ballistic gel problems. The minute you shoot a ballistic gel block once, it is compromised, and the test is not exactly the same as the other one was. If you stack them on top of each other and shoot the bottom one, it is compressed more than the top one. There's all kind of problems with that. We can't shoot a bone twice, so you need 100 of them, right? Is it something that you got to have, um, like, a certain animal that you're looking at? And well, what, it depends on what you're trying to test. test. South Texas that has big, well, yeah. might be able to get on. I'm just thinking, like last year, was it North North Dakota that had that big EHD outbreak with all the deer laying around? Is that something you just go collect those up and start? Yeah, to, to... well, that's well that's thirty minute thing. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> I got you. So the the thirty minute thing is on the bones as well. Well, no, not not on the bones if they're properly handled. Okay, you cannot use old bones. Uh, old bones won't work. They lose the, all the bone actually uh, because it's dried out. It gets harder and it gets more brittle, so you get a lot more shattering effect. You it's very difficult for old bones to get the kind of bone splits that you get in fresh bone. It just doesn't show up. That makes sense. So you've got to have relatively fresh bones, and you can take bones and fresh 
and put them in the freezer and within a reasonable period of time, take them out, bring them back to temperature and shoot them. But so you can't and get similar results to what you see in the real animal. That's what you have to go back and compare. That's why I said I keep, I always kept a separate database of my hunted animals. And I use that, collecting those same data points to see is what I am seeing in a hunting situation correlate with what I'm seeing in the setup shots. And that's the only way you, I could validify. And that's where I picked up this 30 minutes. Under ideal weather conditions, you can go longer than 30 minutes. But I went with the worst weather conditions for being able to utilize the shots and set that as the time limit. And so we try to stick to that time limit regardless of the, of the weather conditions uh, for the testing. But that's where I picked that up was trying to, when I was shooting animals that had been dead for an hour, the results weren't correlating with what I had in the hunting database. So I took all of those findings and threw them out of the database. So and only kept the, if we the drive road. around and pick up roadkill and put them in our freezer and then send them to you on dry ice, that's not going to help your process. That's <laughs> not going to help. <laughs> One thing that area is when, when the animal is fresh like that, you have this blood suffused environment, blood, fresh blood. You've had it on your hands trying to dress an animal and how slick your knife handle gets and how hard it is to hold, it lubricates your air. Once that blood isn't fresh flowing, mo still liquid within the tissues, starting to coagulate, you no longer have the same results. And the meat gets grippy too. Yep. There's so many things that you, you play. get it's amazing. Meat tension, yes. Yeah. Yeah. The tension of the fibers. That's so dumb. It's super fun. And it's so dumb for the details. Just okay. setting up a test, just setting up a test. Me and Barnett spent an hour and 20 minutes the other day just getting the arrow gun set up on zero. And then we spent another two hours recording shooting the arrow gun with broadheads. It was a three and a half hour deal. And an hour and a half of it was just, it's a gun. You move the scope around, the thing's supposed to hit. Well, it was hitting about 10 feet short. And then we shot over the target. You had to go into bushes and go find some bolts. <laughs> <laughs> Only to discover, oh crap, it didn't work out to what we thought it was going to. Why? Now we got to go do it all again. <laughs> oh man. Well, that's that's good. I'll just leave the, all that stuff to you, smart people, and then when you put it up there, I'll, I'll be the the dumb one that goes and buys it. So. Uh, oh, well, we did well, the field point test with um, arrow gun, and then he said, "I'm just going to slap a broadhead on there," and the thing went. Woo! We said, "Uh oh." Take off. <laughs> We better test that. Now, what, one thing we do have coming up, you know, I, I sit around here because of all of the medical problems that I've had, and I can't get out there and do the testing and stuff like that. It really bugs me, you know, that, geez, Troy's out doing stuff, and Daryl and Rob's going and doing stuff. Everybody's got projects they're doing. Uh, you know, Jake and Emily, they're, they're working on social media stuff. And here I've been sitting literally other than giving advice doing nothing but now i have my own project out of these youth hunters that came there was a young girl she's about 12 years old i guess she's very keen 
very intelligent, very articulate, ask intelligent questions. Uh, she's relatively uh, a good shot with a bow. She has done some gun hunting, took a monster mule deer with a rifle last year out in New Mexico. I mean, a true trophy mule deer. Uh, very keen. They live a fair distance away, but, you know, her dad was down with her as the chaperone on this hunt. And, of course, each of the hunters had a guide. But uh, I talked to them, and, and they've agreed to we're going to get into this project. And I'm going to take this little girl and try to teach her as much as I can about hunting and stalking and the bush skills to be able to survive if she got lost out there. And we're going to video the whole thing in a series, probably going to take two or three years to do the whole thing. And we'll have to do it in little bits and pieces. But uh, this is this is my new project. And uh, that's awesome. I, I, I'm, I'm paying for all of the materials. All the, She'll get a lot of perks out of it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, I will make that as a donation to the foundation because it's tax deductible that way. <laughs> That'll at least help me out some. Uh, but, you know, uh, just in the two weeks or so since we decided to start this project, and she agreed to it, I've bought, oh, better than $1,000 worth of materials already to get ready to, to start on this. I'm going to teach her how to build a ghillie suit from the ground up. Uh, she's going to build it. We're going to, you know, as a work-along thing, I'm going to teach her proper stalking skills. Uh, we're, uh, when she gets further along with it, we're going to start her out taking her. You know, Troy's already uh, a volunteer. Uh, we'll take her up there, and uh, uh, she'll start out doing some stalking with, with this little 44 carbine. And so she doesn't have to get more than 40, 50 yards, though. As her skills develop, then we're going to get up there with a bow doing the same thing, stalking an animal with a bow into bow range. Uh, so we're, we're going through all these skills. Uh, I, I may have to enlist Rob or somebody to uh, want to teach her how to build her own arrows and things of that nature. Uh, only reason I can't do that anymore, not only have I lost hand dexterity, but I've given away most of it to guys, the foundation, most of my error equipment. I think Troy's benefited from a couple of them. Troy has benefited. He's got sea containers at his house full of the stuff he had from the, the testing. It's awesome. It's like a museum of awesome. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's going to be an A to Z trying to bring this novice bow hunter up to being a highly skilled bow hunter and it's also got the advantage of here we're working with someone that shoots light poundage and short arrows so we can see all the advantages you can get by building your arrow to get the most performance you can out of it because you can take these little light bows and short arrow draws and like we had uh, Emily shooting a 38-pound compound with about four and a half feet of penetration in an eland on a hard quartering away shot. Uh, you can do this. You can make those light bows outperform 
what most of the macho guys out there with 70 and 80 pound bows can't do with the arrow setups they're using. She can get better terminal performance than they get. And so we're going through all an educational series of videos on this project. And that's, I hope, is what I'm going to be doing for the next few years. <laughs> Sounds like every kid's dream. At least my as a kid, I it would have been my dream. So. I mean, I'm 40. And oh, she's excited. Like, <laughs> so. out. Oh, funny. Now, one of the things I, I'm really looking forward to is uh, I've always had this thing of uh, once you've got your, I, well, I stored it in my quiver, and she's going to have a quiver just like the type that I used. I'm setting up all the equipment in it. Is uh, when I went out and shot an animal, sometimes the weather conditions permitting so that the meat wasn't going to be a problem, uh, I would right there stop, okay, I'm going to spend the night right here. I want to test if the equipment I have with me is adequate if I have to stay out in the woods, whether I got lost, whether I got injured, whatever. And also we're setting up, you know, the obligatory equipment I think every bow hunter should carry. Something like sea locks or blood stop, Israeli bandage, and a tourniquet. I think every bow hunter should have those three things. I was along on a hunt many years ago. Uh, I was actually a teenager at the time, trailing a deer. The guy that shot the deer had a bow quiver back in the early days when they didn't have hoods, and he jabbed a quiver full of broadheads into his thigh. Oh. Uh, made me realize that it's a real good idea to have this stuff along. Because cocaine. Anything can happen. You can't use cocaine, right, Ed? It's illegal. Well, uh, in Africa, you can buy almost anything you want <laughs> at pharmacy. Cocaine is a real oh, Over there, you know, I had liquid morphine, I had injectable morphine, I had morphine tablets. Uh, you know, he, he, around all those big dangerous animals is a good thing to have. Uh, I, one of my favorite things, I had a, a one of my PH friends, real good friend, uh, severely mauled by a 90-pound leopard uh, that his client had shot. Uh, and the only thing they had in camp was a single aspirin. Oh. They had no other, med not even a Band-Aid. And uh, he, he survived that. I actually did an interview with him in the hospital the day after the mauling. And his name was uh, Rory Mew, uh, spelled M-U-I-L, but pronounced just like the animal, Mew. And one year later, almost to the day, his brother, who is also a PH, was mauled by a leopard. Ugh. And after that, I told him, all these years, I, I guided several people for leopards. All these years, I have been using the wrong bait. You should use a mule. Yeah, use those guys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Ed, I really thank you for for the work that you've done, uh, you know, over the decades, and 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 Troy for what you're doing now and the way that you communicate that work. Um, thank you. You know, I I think it's 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 a very noble thing, and you know, I. I love it. I, I, I really do. I, it, it makes sense to me. 
um, the research makes sense. The you know, the system makes sense. So I, I think more people, I think eventually are going to open their minds uh, to this. So Ed, your website is ashbybowhunting.org. Troy, people can find you on Instagram, Ranch Ferry, YouTube, Ranch Ferry. Yeah, that was um, great. It's all good stuff. I really thank you guys for your time. And uh, Ed, we, we, we definitely want to, we want to have you back on. There's, there is, I feel hundreds of hours of conversations that I could have with you about uh, any, well, any number of topics. So I'd, I'd love time, to have you like back I said, Other than this film project, most of the time, I'm either going to the doctor or doing nothing. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much. And uh, um, we'll have you back on. Thanks guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. Enjoy.